welcome back to Homecoming, a podcast that features the diverse stories and experiences of Asians, Asian Americans, and Pacific Islanders. I'm Angel Rena. And I'm Emily. Thank you so much for joining us on our first full episode of Homecoming. If you haven't checked out our first episode yet, where we lay out what this podcast is all about, please feel free to take a listen. So, Angel Rena, do you want to tell our listeners what we'll be discussing this week? Yeah, so today we will be focusing on COVID-19, and I know we briefly discussed it on the previous episode, but today we're going to be able to actually hear from some members of the Yale Asian American community and the various ways that they've been affected by the pandemic and also how they have responded to community needs in light of that. And we're also so excited because we have not one, but two guests on this episode of Homecoming. So our first guest is Kelly Long. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. (laughs) So please tell us about yourself, where you're from, who you are in and outside of the Yale community. Um, Hi, my name is Kelly Long. Uh, I go by she, her, hers pronouns. I'm a first year in JE. Um... I identify as a Sino-Vietnamese American. Uh, Within Yale, I'm really involved with the Vietnamese Students Association. Uh, I'm the co-social chair. Um, I'm also involved in the Immigrant History Project with Emily. Um, I'm I'm a uh, advising fellow for Matriculate, and I've also taught a Sprout course about V-pop, so that was fun. Uh, I'm also, I'm from Dallas, Texas, Um, and yeah, that's about it. That's really cool that you taught a class on V-pop. Yeah, it was it was really cool because like actually none of the kids were Vietnamese, um, <laughs> and none of them had ever been exposed to V-pop, uh, and they were all like middle schoolers, so it was like kind of dry at first, but uh, <laughs> they ended up liking the class. That's awesome. Um, did you like know going into Sprout that you wanted to teach a course on V-pop? Um. Yeah, so we were approached with the opportunity to teach a course, and we decided to teach a course on V-pop and the Vietnamese creative scene. So we taught, like, uh, we talked about V-pop, we talked about a lot of Vietnamese movies, um, Vietnamese dance, and, like, photography. Oh, wow, that's really cool, Kelly. Would you maybe be able to explain what Sprout is for all of the non-Yale listeners out there? Yeah, so Sprout is a program at Yale, so there's Sprout and Splash. Um, Sprout is a three-day course, um, mainly for high schoolers, and Splash is like a one-day course uh, aimed at middle schoolers, basically Yale students get to design and teach their own classes. Great, okay, thank you. Just wanted to make sure that people know what we're referring to. Um, So our first question to you relating to um, the coronavirus is how has um, COVID-19 impacted you and your family? Um, I think like one of the obvious impacts is just like it's a great source of instability um, and so I'm a first-gen low-income student and so you know it was hard enough for me already to transition into college but to like transition out of college and then into like college at home was like a whole different challenge I had to face um, and like just for my family like I live with my entire extended family, so there's like 10 of us in this house, and five of my family members are uh, categorized as high risk, whether that be like they're over the age of 65 or they have like um, underlying conditions. 
Um, and so it's like a really big concern for me, like their health and safety. Um, and a lot of my family members also work in industries that are just like not very good to be in right now. Like my parents, my mom works in a factory that makes airplane parts. Um, not a lot of demand for that right now. Um, and my dad uh, works in a Chinese restaurant, which has since like closed down. Um, most of my uncles also work in Chinese restaurants. And so like they're just completely out of work right now. Um, and it's just like a difficult situation for everybody. Hmm. Is the area that you live in, are you at home right now in Texas? Yeah, I am. Okay, so what's the situation like in Dallas right now? Is it just pretty crazy and hectic to go outside? Yeah, so um, Texas actually has the lowest um, testing per capita. And so like um, in Dallas County, there are like several hundreds of cases and there's like obviously like multiple instances of community spread, but there's just like no way for us to test everybody. And so it's like, you just kind of have to assume that everybody has it and just be like as careful as you can be. Yeah, Kelly, I actually very much relate to you because I'm also currently living at home with some members of my extended family, um, specifically my grandparents on my mom's side because they came to visit the U.S. for some time, and but you know their flights have been canceled multiple times, and so they aren't able to go back home to China right now. And also, my parents also own and work at a Chinese restaurant. And I'm from Missouri, and thankfully there aren't too many cases in the town that they work in. But they did have to take a couple of months off for stay-at-home orders and stuff like that. But yeah, there have been so many businesses and organizations that have been impacted. And we talked about this a bit in our last episode, but a lot of Chinese and Asian small businesses and restaurants have been hit particularly hard by this pandemic. And it's just really unfortunate that this is happening. Yeah, definitely. Right. I know a lot of restaurants in the food industry in New York have shifted to only takeout operations, but like you mentioned, Kelly, a lot of your relatives are out of work, and the Chinese restaurants that they'd been working in have closed, so it feels like, yes, takeout is an option right now for many restaurants that are struggling, but perhaps not for some Asian restaurants just because of how the virus has been racialized. Sort of speaking about how you had to transition out of college, Kelly, you feel like Yale has taken sufficient measures to support its students, especially um, first-generation low-income students, as well as its staff and faculty um, and other locals in New Haven. So I, I feel like I've been very vocal about this, that I'm like, I'm disappointed in I guess, like, the lack of measures on the part of um, Yale's administration that they've taken to support not only the students, but, like, New Haven. Um, but the, the issue is that I don't think I can actually point at a university that has, like, done well by everybody. Um, and it's really a situation of, like, this is what you get. And it's, like, all we can do is ask for more and demand that Yale do more. Um, but there's, like, no guarantee that that's going to be achieved. I mean, like, 
I, I found it particularly embarrassing that the mayor of New Haven asked um, Peter Salovey if they could house first responders on uh, Yale's campus, and he said no. Like, I think that's like, I, I just think that's like super telling of like where the priority lies. Um, I also found it like really frustrating, I guess, that like there had to be this whole like, obviously like the universal pass debate has been like, um, particularly, I guess, like inflammatory on our campus. Like it's been a very like divisive issue. Um, and I like totally understand that like they had to listen to people and what people had to say, but it's like, it took them three weeks into the semester to actually like act on that policy. And like, those were three weeks that like first gen low income students had to suffer through and had to like bear through um, before the institution was basically like forced to do um, what they were asked to do. And I, I personally just like, I don't know, I think like this whole incident has made me see in Yale uh, made me see Yale in a different light because I think going into this like I already knew Yale was like this like ivory tower um, predominantly white institution um, but I had this like hope I guess that like Yale is different because like I think that the Yale student body is certainly very like progressive um, and I think that like Yale hammers into our brains that they care about us and that they care about the students um, but I just think that the way that they've like handled this situation has kind of shown me that that's not true. Yeah, when universal past bail was implemented, it was sort of depicted as like this, you know, amazing victory. But like you said, it could also have been construed as like, oh, Yale, you know, finally did literally the bare minimum to take care of its students. Um, and to address the vast inequalities in home situations. This might be kind of like kind of off topic, but I also kind of want to know, like, what do you feel like Yale's priorities are? I feel like Yale's priority is always inward facing. Um, I feel like Yale takes care of Yale first, you know, like, and that's not always like Yale taking care of like Yale students. That's like Yale taking care of itself as an institution. Um, I think that they're looking out for, like, these schools' needs, um, whether that be, like, financial or, like, trying to keep the resources within Yale. Um, and so I think it's, like, I don't know, there's, like, a difference between, like, Yale the school and, like, Yale the students, if that makes sense. Yeah, 100%. Something else we wanted to know, um, sort of moving outward, do you have any particular thoughts about how the pandemic has been handled nationally by people like President Trump, you know, congressmen, congresswomen, the CDC? Yeah, I think there are definitely some like, okay, well, obviously it hasn't been handled well, <laughs> um, but for the, like, I think there are some congressmen and congresswomen who are making moves and um, doing the right thing like um, but I think like you can basically summarize the U.S. response is like too little too late I mean like like Emily said earlier like President Trump spent the spent the entire beginning of this um, pandemic like racializing the virus and like calling it a hoax and now like look where we are. Do you feel like despite all that there is to be worried about um, and to be 
angry about, you know, like with universities not doing enough to support its students. Um, do you think that anything good or, you know, positive has resulted from this pandemic? I think that like, I guess like ironically, this pandemic has shown that like everything that we once assumed was like impossible or that we've been told is like not possible is suddenly possible. Like all of a sudden, like insulin can be affordable and all of a sudden, like everyone can get like um, free coronavirus treatment. And it's like, okay, well suddenly everybody can get insurance or like, uh, well not insurance, but suddenly everybody can afford care. Um, And so I think it's a very galvanizing historical moment. Um, I think like people suddenly realize that like all these systems that we've spent all this time being like, oh, the system's broken. It's like, no, the system isn't broken. This is exactly how the system is meant to work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's like a big wake up call for people. And I like really appreciate a lot of the conversation that I've been hearing like um, on social media and just like in some of the friend circles that I'm in, like the conversations I've been hearing about like how we need to be pursuing systemic change and how we need to stop trying to like make the best of the situation we have because like making the best of the system we have is like never going to correct the systemic problems that we have. When you say systemic, do you mean like relating to healthcare, relating to race? Like what are you referring to? I think uh, I think all of those things are intertwined. Um, I don't think you can really talk about healthcare without talking about healthcare inequality and healthcare inequality is explicitly racial and class-based and like you can't talk about class without talking about race um I think like all of those those sources of oppression are just like very intersectional and so I think like when I talk about like the systemic failure it's really like a total failure to meet the needs of the people who have historically been oppressed and marginalized Mm -hmm. Do you think that these changes will be able to be sustained by the larger political system even after the pandemic ends? Um, I'm sure people, especially like politicians, will urge a return to normalcy. Um, I just don't know that, you know, after we've experienced all this, that people will be able to look at normalcy and be like, yeah, this is adequate. Um, I think like, you know, diabetics have been like, angry for years that they can't have affordable insulin like people go to other countries to buy insulin and all of a sudden like it's affordable and like all of a sudden it's possible so if it was possible during like the most dire of situations why can't it be possible like on a normal day-to-day basis um i just think it's like one of those moments that's going to cause people to push against what like our politicians want and push against normal and like try to establish a better normal do you have any advice for our listeners on how to stay safe and engaged? Um, well, the number one thing I would say is that for individuals, especially those who have been affected by this, then they need to be patient with themselves and realize that like any change that is ever going to happen can't happen at the expense of their well-being. So just take care of yourself because this is like not something that people are just going to like walk out of like completely unharmed. Um, And just, like, I guess remember how this made you feel, like, seeing that all of the inequalities that we have dealt with for so long 
are just like completely manufactured. So just like be patient with yourself. Um, don't forget this moment, which I doubt anybody will. Um, and just like understand that like enacting systemic change is gonna take like time and organizing and try to get more involved with your local organizers and with like national, um, with organization at the national level. And how have you been taking care of yourself during this time? Uh, I haven't. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I, no, it's okay. I'm trying to get better at it. Again, it's like a learning process. Um, yeah, taking care of yourself is really hard. You know, like self-care is like difficult. Um, especially when it's like, I feel like, especially as college students, we always feel like we have to be doing something. Like, mm -hmm. even when you feel like you'd rather do nothing, it's like, I always feel like I need to be like doing work or something, but I'm like, okay, but like my life is kind of falling apart. So maybe I should like deal with that instead. Um, and so like just trying to keep in touch with friends and like spending time with family um, which is, like, something not everyone can do, but just, like, do the things you enjoy. Just, like, try to stay in a better headspace, I guess. Yeah, I definitely agree with you, Kelly. To our listeners, right now is such an opportune time for us to reflect and think about how our society works, issues we see at an institutional level, and also actions that we can try to take to combat those issues. And Kelly, thank you so much for sharing all of that. So Kelly, before you sign off, we've got a few more lighthearted rapid fire questions to ask <laughs> you, um, just so our listeners can get to know you better as a person. So the first question, what is one good movie or TV show that you've watched recently? Uh, I watched The Farewell recently on like the flight home. And it's so good. Okay, I haven't watched that yet. I need to. It's so cute. What is your favorite place to study on Yale campus? Um, okay, everybody says not to do this, but I always study in my room or like in my bed. Um, I think it's just because like, I don't know, I always feel too lazy to like walk to the library or something. So I'd just rather be like in my own space. And what's the last song you listened to? Uh, it was I'd Rather Go Blind, but like the Beyonce version. And finally, what has been your favorite quarantine activity? I've been playing like a ridiculous amount of Animal Crossing. <laughs> I feel like everyone's been doing that, but I've been really into it. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. On Switch? Yeah. I've actually played like all of the Animal Crossing games. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Okay, and that's all the rapid fire questions we have. Thank you so much, Kelly, for your insight and for telling us about you and your experiences. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs> and everyone, our second guest today is a boss woman. She's very active in a variety of different organizations in the Asian and social justice communities. Victoria Xie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me on. 
So, Victoria, do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners, um, explain where you grew up, where do you call home, and who are you within and also outside of the Yale community? Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, I go by Victoria or also um, Biman or Jaja because I'm trying to like bring the Chinese names back. Um, yes. This colonized, like using this colonizer name, I don't know. It's like a lot that I have to unpack that I won't do on air, but like I'm trying to like phase that out kind of. And I also use any or all pronouns. Um, but in short, I was born in um, the province of Hunan in China. And then I moved here to Chicago when I was around three years old. And so I've been growing up in Chicago um, for pretty much my whole life until I moved to um, Yale for school. So New Haven. And um, I guess, yeah, I like, I don't know like what else to say about myself other than like Chicago really like shaping a big part of my life and um, opening my eyes to a lot of like social injustices that I see here in the U.S. because it's such a large city and like I guess I hate saying the word microcosm but like you can definitely see some of the country's biggest inequities um, still in this city like inflated to the max because it's got a history of like red line segregationism and so many other um, problems happening in this place. And so like I grew up with a lot of this stuff and like my own neighborhood is impacted by things like environmental racism. And so like a lot of these issues are not new to me. And that's why um, I think they're like really important to um, the work that I do and like what I decide to put my time towards. Are you in Chicago right now? Yeah, I'm recording from my childhood bedroom. <laughs> oh. Yeah, so you spoke a little bit about how you see um, the impacts of environmental racism in Chicago. And I was wondering, um, do you feel like Chicago has been disproportionately affected by um, COVID-19? Yeah, so I don't know if y'all saw this news report, but it was like, it really blew up recently where um, basically, in short... um, 70% of COVID-19 deaths in Chicago are, um, like, Black individuals. And so that's, like, that's way higher than the national 40%, I believe. And, like, compared to, like, the population of Black residents that we have in Chicago, that's, like, I think more than double, maybe triple. I'm not really sure. But, like, Black and, like, Black and Indigenous people are being disproportionately affected. And also um, a lot of immigrant communities as well. Um, A lot of API communities up in the north side, like Ridgewood, I think they have the highest cases of COVID-19 right now. And a lot of these places are, um, like, areas that are often neglected by our um, local government. And these are places where there's things like asphalt plants being built or, like, a lot of other, um, I don't know, old factories being like demolished. Like I think recently in Little Village, which is a primarily um, Chicanx neighborhood, there's been um, there's been a building demolition recently that brought a lot of pollutants into the air like yesterday, I believe. And so we all know that COVID-19 is like a respiratory health problem. And mm-hmm. like to decide that something like the demolition of a factory right now would be like essential activity um in a neighborhood that is disproportionately like brown and immigrant is like i think that's ridiculous and it puts a lot more of these people at risk um during a pandemic like this i've also been reading that like on the in the new york times that a lot of coronavirus cases are linked to this one um jail in chicago 
And I feel like there, there's a lot to be said about that as well and how incarcerated individuals have been impacted by COVID. Yeah, so they're actually trying to get we're trying to get a lot of people released um right now and I think JB Pritzker is like um beginning to like roll people out like but they're definitely not moving quickly enough. Right now there's only been like 60 people in juvenile detention that have like been scheduled for release, but I know the population is way bigger than that. And like I just don't think there should be kids in jail like period or like people at all in jail, but like it's it's been moving along but really slowly. Also, how has, you know, you've talked about how coronavirus has impacted, you know, Illinois and the place that you live, but how has it, the pandemic also affected you personally and your family? Yeah, so, oh yeah, I totally forgot to mention that. Um, right now, so my mom is um, an ER nurse, so she's working on the front lines. Mm-hmm. And for her, this is like, I'm personally kind of stressed because she works two jobs and one of them is um, like in a senior care center and the other one is in the emergency room where she sees high risk patients all the time as an emergency room nurse. And so like we all know that older folks are more susceptible to COVID-19 and have a much higher mortality rate. And so like that's something that's personally stressful for her because like there were issues with um the hospital that she works at, like where she's an ER nurse, where um, they wouldn't let her bring in her own protective equipment for a while. Um, And that's like kind of whack, right? Because then she like goes to her next day job, which is like to see a lot of elderly and immunocompromised people, which like that's not really like that's really not ideal. Like you don't want to be putting those people at risk. And a lot of hospital management policies have been like putting those people at risk with these really weird like management problems and so that's something that's like that we've been affected by personally and also um we're kind of worried for my sister who has a history of asthma so that's really not fun but that aside like we've been um doing all right and it's been really like amazing to see all of the support and mutual aid um that's been happening around healthcare workers um like so my mom has a lot of colleagues in China who are also healthcare workers and like handled the crisis back at home. And a lot of them sent their leftover protective equipment to her in the U.S. Um, so that she could also donate that to the hospital. And so I thought that was really incredible um, to see that like even like internationally, there's been tremendous acts of mutual aid that have helped so much. Mm, yeah, that's amazing that they've been sending you all of that equipment And actually, this is a good segue into our next question. So I know from who you are and also your social media pages that you've been very active in advocating for and supporting the New Haven Area Mutual Aid Fund, opening rooms at Yale for local New Haveners, healthcare for undocumented families, and so many more. Um, So do you want to talk about maybe a couple or all of these different initiatives, what they are, what they're trying to achieve, what we can do to help, and also why they're important for people to know about and support. Oh my god, so like, I'm not actually, I'm not directly involved with all of these. I've just been seeing a lot of the work that these organizations have been doing. So I've been boosting them on social media to get um, like more people tapped in and like donating and like, sending in whatever help they can. And so I feel like that credit should go to them. It definitely shouldn't go to me. (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, so I think the biggest thing that I've been working on has been Step Up, um, Step Up Yale, which like followed um, the Universal Pasta, which like, yay, like no grades. Um, but because now like the whole thing is that there's a lot of empty dorm rooms that um, like, there's, so there's no one in there, but also at the same time, we have a lot of people who are out on the streets in New Haven um, who, like, they can't really self-quarant- like, self-isolate like self or quarantine if they're displaying COVID-19 symptoms or are at risk, which, like, all of them are precisely because they don't have housing. Um, so we were thinking that, like, we could get the university to step up and put its resources into um, housing a lot of the people who, like, most direly need it. Um, and so this has been like a really wild issue just because at the same time we have to like work with the unions and all of like and Yale employees to see what their capacity is because we also don't want to be putting more frontline workers at risk um, by having them like an excessive number of them back um, working like full time to be taking care of these people because like these are also workers who are like taking care of other people who are like just similarly like at risk, you know? Um, I think workers' rights, like, also really have to be taken in consideration, and they're definitely not in opposition to each other. Um, and that's those are just like some of my thoughts regarding all of this. Um, but I think, yeah, definitely like donating to a lot of mutual aid groups. Like, there's a new, um, I think it's like a new GoFundMe because the PayPal link um, blew up or something. But for the New Haven mutual aid, there's like a link there that I can put y'all onto. Um, and then there's also a lot of other um, links that I've like compiled in a document that I can share later too, if that would be helpful. Um, Cause I know like there's, yeah, Semia Collective and I think one other group, I don't remember the name off the top of my head right now, but they're the ones organizing New Haven Mutual Aid. And then there's like a Facebook group too. Um, Stop CT, um, or not CT, Stop Solitary CT is also another great group doing like prison abolition work and like trying to end solitary confinement, um, which they normally do, but like right now it's especially needed. Um, and they've been working on trying to bail people out. Um, and the same thing goes for um, New Haven Bail Fund or Connecticut Bail Fund. And so um, it's like also really important to get incarcerated people out of those spaces. Um, because like similar to being unhoused, you're just in a condition in which you cannot self quarantine, you can't self isolate without putting yourself and others into harm's way. And so that's why it's crucial, like more so than ever before to get people freed when like these systems shouldn't have existed in the first place. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for sharing. And I also know that you're always willing to talk about race and politics so we want to know, what do you think are the political, social, and racial repercussions of this pandemic? And I know this is a loaded question, but I also know that you've got a lot to say about it. Yeah, so there's, so I think like none of the issues being shown by this pandemic are like actually new. Um, a lot of these are just exacerbated things that like exacerbated existing conditions that we've that we like have here in the US and I think also like on a global level too because like I think one thing that like we sometimes forget like at the imperial core here in the United States is that 
all the inequity in the United States like radiates globally um, because we are like an imperial power and extract so much of our power by exploiting other countries globally. Um, and I just realized that I didn't like talk specifically about any of like the racial or like um, inequitable like um, outcomes or repercussions of this pandemic. But I think like talking, I, I talked earlier about incarceration and how it's predominantly like black and indigenous people who get incarcerated and also definitely like low income people, right? Because with policies like cash bail, like you can pay your way out of prison, but that's like, obviously the people getting locked up are not the people who can afford bail to get out. Um, and so that's like one thing, like racial inequities are definitely coming out to the forefront. Um, and it's like not a reflection of anything new, like definitely not um, considering race was constructed in order to forward capitalist extraction and extractive interests by um, like a lot of Western European countries and the United States. Um, so that's like one big long-winded statement <laughs> there. <laughs> um, and also, uh, I think yesterday we talked about um, Andrew Yang's article, which I thought was crazy. <laughs> like, it was nuts. Mm -hmm. um, but also, like, more specifically about Asian Americans and um, how this is, like, this pandemic is affecting us. Um, and with that, um, I feel like there's been this, like, on, in in some parts, like, I feel like I've seen a tendency for Asian Americans to try to move away um, from wanting to identify as Asian, which I think is like super whack. Um, and like, I don't know. Yeah. Like for y'all listeners, if you haven't read that <laughs> like Andrew Yang article yet, just like, don't read it. It's you're going to lose themselves. But um, what he's saying basically is that like, in order to avoid anti-Asian racism, we have to like reject our Asianness and like be more American, which is, so crazy considering that like immigration patterns here to the u.s are like generally because like hey you tore up our country now we have nowhere else to go but to the imperial core right um and so like definitely like american is something that i like have like been really wrapping my head around as an identity to like embrace i don't know i think that concept is like generally kind of whack considering that um the u.s like treats asian americans and a lot of other like immigrant groups here as just extensions of um like the homelands that we come from and which like they're places that the united states extracts from and exploits and so ultimately we're like we have a lot more in common um with our home countries than we do with the u.s I believe. And I think this is really reflected in all of the anti-Asian and like all the xenophobic sentiments that have come up as of late. Yeah, completely. Andrew Yang also brings up the fact that a lot of Japanese Americans volunteered to serve in the military during World War II. And he's, he's, he's using that example to say that the solution he's proposing has historical precedence. But at the same time, it's also really sad and warped thinking, you know, that we have to prove that we're patriotic and that we can be palatable and to show the dominant culture that we're on their side. 
which of course is just really sad and perverse because this is a virus. I don't think there's anyone on the planet who's not on the side of humanity. And I think Andrew Yang, by publishing that article, inadvertently is giving a lot of legitimacy to all the horribly racist things that have been said about Asian Americans and the virus. Yeah, I agree with what both of you guys have said. And um, for those of you who don't know what Andrew Yang article we're referring to, he wrote an, wrote an opinion piece for the Washington Post on April 1st, 2020. Um, I don't think it was an April Fool's joke. I think it was his actual opinion. And y'all should definitely give it a read. But one part of the article that really stuck out to me was when he was talking about how this person came up to him when he was still running for president and asked him, how do we keep the coronavirus from inciting hostility towards Asians in the U.S.? And he basically responded with something along the lines of, oh, the best thing that could happen for Asians right now would be to get this virus under control, and then any racism would likely fade. And that's a direct quote. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I don't think so. I, I guarantee you racism will not fade after this pandemic is over. And yeah, he, like you said, Emily, he also referred to how during World War II, Japanese Americans really stepped up and demonstrated their Americanness, and we should really try to emulate that. And all of this just gives me a sense and just lets me know that he's really not taking into account of this idea of well, why should we step up and try extra hard to prove our Americanness when there have been so many instances of America and white America doing us wrong and trying to show us that we aren't American and that we don't belong in this country? Like, why should that burden be on our shoulders? Yeah, right. I mean, like, I guess in a sense, like, this is just like throwing a curveball out there, but like in the sense of like, we are the enemy, I'd, I'd say rather like, I, I guess like, I mean, are we the enemy like in the face of like the United, like the US like empire, I guess? Like, I, I like, I for one believe that like, we like fundamentally do pose that sort of threat to the collapse of US empire. <laughs> like, yeah, I like personally... I have really complicated feelings on this because, like, I don't really see America as, like, a welcoming home to, like, come back to um, because, like, of its history of exploiting the countries that we do come from and then creating, and like, conditions in the countries that we come from where we have little choice but to move to places like the core of empire. Because, like, when I say imperial core, I'm, like, talking about the U.S. and how, um like, a lot of its power comes from, I, like, for example, the biggest example I have in my brain is, like, the transatlantic slave trade, right? So that's, like, the U.S. going overseas um, and, like, taking, like, physical labor and, like, like capital from other places to build its own power, right? Like, because the people that it, like, stole from overseas are literally building, like, this country. Um, so that's, like, one example of that. But also, like, um, the U.S., like, involving itself in a lot of wars in, like, 
Latin America or like Southeast Asia or just like all its beef with China, you know, um, is so that it can maintain a lot of its interests in those areas. Um, for example, like in Latin America, a lot of the U.S.'s CIA intervention has been to um, make sure that a lot of companies like that have U.S. interests can like maintain their stronghold in those regions. Um, and intervening in other countries and like taking other countries' shit is that's how it makes its money. Like that's how it builds its power um, and keeps like keeps us fed. And so like I think it's kind of for me. I like have a nihilist, like an almost nihilist view of this, in which like like it's just impossible to sort of change that rhetoric of like non-white like Americans, like non-white inhabitants inhabitants of the U.S. being like a threat to. American empire because like in a sense we are um like we we do sort of pose that threat to that collapse of this like sort of hegemony worldwide and like I guess it's just a matter of like do we think that's a good thing do we think it's a bad thing so there's a lot to be angry about and a lot to be worried about but what is one good thing that you think has come out of this pandemic or, you know, like, has anything good come out of this pandemic? Hmm, I think, like, I don't know if it's, like, necessarily good that it took a pandemic for, um, like, for this to happen. But just, like, the fact that, like, as y'all said, there's more people getting involved in, like, realizing the full extent to which a system like this is failing and that, like, more people are taking action, um, against a system like this and like in order to help each other survive in this time um and so I guess it's like been a good case study in everything that's gone wrong um about the system that we live in right now and like the fact that so many more people are raising their consciousness um like me included for sure because every day like that something new happens I feel like I learned something totally new um and like there's more that like I learned that I can contribute and like I just think it's it's like good that people seem to be getting mobilized um by a circumstance like this but I really don't like I just wish it wouldn't take like global disaster for that to for that to happen you know in your opinion then do you think that once the world recovers um or you know hopefully will recover do you think that this kind of thinking will recede and will sort of go back to the way things were before the epidemic? Or are you a little bit more positive or optimistic about people, you know, being fed up with the way that the system has been failing them and, you know, mobilizing and organizing to affect change? I think the optimist of, like in me says that I think people will continue to stay engaged and mobilized, right? Just like on a smaller scale, like seeing the Asian American community here, like respond to a lot of these and like have a lot of our paradigms shifted um, in our understanding of race and our relationship to empire and our relationship to our home countries. Like that's been really incredible to see. And I don't really see like any signs of that reversing in the near future or like in the future at all, um, given like this wild like response to Andrew Yang's article like on behalf of like every Asian American I know (laughs) which I think is like that's that's great um but also like in a much more real sense like looking more long term I think 
like this sort of consciousness will have like there will be no option but for it to continue because like the pandemic kind of doesn't just stop like once the cases start going down or like once people start getting better um because this has left a lot of infrastructural and like a lot of just other damages um that are that go far beyond just the disease right like with the calls to decarceration, a lot of people are realizing that like it's whack that a system like this should even ever be in place. Um, and we also see the worsening of those systems that are built to like keep people in prison or um, like to make a lot of communities way harder to live in than others, right? And so just to see these like conditions worsen um, under a circumstance like this and not really recover once all of the cases are actually down, like that'll require us to like stay vigilant and to like continue demanding more um and like to create like to fulfill those demands on our own like it's i think it's clear to a lot of us that maybe like the electoral system or like asking those in power to um give us what we need won't work anymore like that we'll have to create that on our own and that's going to take a lot of visioning um and a lot of like mobilizing around these things because I think a lot of us are like fed up um, and it's just becoming like a lot more clear now because these issues aren't going away after the pandemic. Like I fully believe they won't. No, you're right, Victoria. These issues certainly aren't going anywhere. And a kind of off topic question I have for you, something that I want to know and probably our listeners also want to know is um, what are you interested in doing in the future? Like, as a career oh so this is really i think this might be really funny to y'all but i'm actually a stem major um (laughs) i right now i don't know how i'm still pre-med but i'm still like pre-med and so my whole motivation for this was so i could go back into like community health work um and possibly work with like like qtpoc communities um and healthcare and because like a lot of there's a lot of healthcare inequity um in those communities not to mention that like the pandemic definitely is like just it's really demonstrated like that sort of unequal access so so i'm thinking like definitely working on stuff that's like public health related um in the short run like maybe like might shoot for like i don't know some type of public health program or whatever but at, like summer wise like i'm definitely looking forward to trying to like volunteer with um this one clinic that um does a lot of work with like the queer community here in chicago especially like the queer community of color um and like that's it's a clinic that a lot of my friends have visited like it's it's a dope place it's it's funny because i am a stem major but like on the other hand i'm in it for like reasons that are i guess different from some of my peers or like i hope they aren't like too different but you know, you know how it is with pre-meds, like, we're, we're out there, <laughs> like, as much as I wish that weren't the case, but hopefully some of us can do, do something a little different. Okay, Victoria, so the last thing before we let you go, yeah. um, we want to do a round of rapid-fire questions so our listeners can get to know you a little <gasps> bit more. Okay. So, first question, do you prefer... Dark chocolate or milk chocolate? Just instinct. Milk, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A good book that you've read recently. Oh, a good book. Um, 
I'm not actually like fully done with this, but Huey Newton's autobiography is amazing. Highly recommend that. Okay. Favorite class at Yale? Oh, oh dear. I don't know. This is hard because like... You can list a couple. Oh, not not in that way. That's not what I meant by it's hard. Because oh. <laughs> I'm like fully in a bio major right now. That's like been all prerequisites so far. But I really liked um my English seminar that was... It was like an English 114 class taught by Rashid Tazuddin. Um, and it was on the grotesque. I think it was really cool. And he also like teaches another. He, I think he's teaching another class this semester on, um, I think, like black and indigenous like ecologies. It's really cool. Um, but I, I haven't caught up with him in a while. And, but he's like been one of my favorite professors at the school. Y'all should get to know him. And lastly... Cross campus or old campus? Cross campus. <laughs> All right, Victoria, thank you again so much for coming on. I know this was a little bit last minute, but you really came through and we were so happy to have you on. And, you know, thank you so much for telling us about yourself and your experiences and all of your thoughts during this crazy time. There's definitely a lot to unpack um, and we appreciate it so much. Please stay safe and thank you so much once again. Oh, thank y'all so much too. Like stay safe, stay well, like lots of love and healing to all your loved ones too. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Homecoming. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us on Facebook at Homecoming Podcast and you can also follow us on Instagram at Homecoming Pod. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>